Alright, hi everyone. Welcome back to my episode. I'm Christy um, from our podcast, More Than Maps and Finding the Why of Where. Um, today I am fortunate enough to be joined with my friend Tori, who also has a segment on this podcast. And today I'm going to be kind of talking to her about a little bit of my literature methodology and logistics for my research project that I kind of gave an overview with in my first section with Avery. So Tori, if you could introduce yourself really quick, um, kind of just a little bit about yourself in an academic setting, but also maybe a little bit about your research and um, yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Hi everybody, um, my name's Tori. I am also a senior geography major um, here with Christy. Yeah, um, my research is kind of centered around um, the abolitionist movement and um, gender violence. So looking at dismantling the systems we currently have centered around like, you know, policing, things like that, and um, hoping to build a more equitable future. So that's kind of what I'll talk about on my episode. But yeah, excited to be here. Awesome. And I just wanted to kind of mention, you know, our podcast topics are a little bit different, but I do think there is a little bit of a connection with um, kind of what violence can look like in different um, communities and different settings. So I'll be excited to kind of look at some of those um, intersecting narratives there. So I kind of, I'll go over a little bit since my podcasts like aren't concurrent, but in the past podcast episode section, whatever you want to call it, with Avery, I kind of talked about the juxtaposition of adoptee perspectives, kind of the joy, elation, excitement um, from the adopter, and then from the adoptee, typically at like a very, very young age, you know, it sense it shows an ending, a fear, um, a trauma, losing what you know, and forced bonding in that kind of stuff, which I think. Um, a little bit of that can relate to your project as well. So I'll be excited to kind of explore that more. Um, and then I kind of talked about some of the data of just how many people are getting adopted and that kind of stuff. So right now we're going to be kind of looking at what even is adoptee geographies? Like, what does that mean? Um, and if you, well, we'll start with this. Have you heard of any sort of geographies of um, familial ties, kinship, adoptee stuff, family formation, anything like that, Tori? Yeah, I mean, I have never heard of adoptee geographies. I think that's probably a new t term you've coined, which is super cool. Um, but kinship geographies has been something that I've heard about, or even um, in like feminist geographies, you get some of the more familial tie and things centered around like love and feeling, which is super important. But I do think adoptee geographies is something new. Thank you for that. I also think it's new, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, for our listeners out there, I'm kind of going to try to explain what I think adoptee geographies are. Um, you know, I had a professor actually ask me like, Christy, I love your research but how does it relate to geography? And I was like, aha, good question. Let me try to figure it out because it is a passion of mine, but trying to figure out 
maybe the specific logistics of how it relates to geography was a little bit of a challenge at first, but then it really related. So, you know, in geography, we talk a lot about sense of place, identity, placemaking, um, social landscape, physical landscape, politics, economics, globalization, all that good stuff. So when we're looking at adoption, there actually is a lot of those concepts that are in that, um, starting from the transactional part of it. Like, this is a process that involves the movement of people or social culture or ethnic identity that is not necessarily um, voluntary. <laughs> so, you know, we've asked in questions, we've asked questions like this before in other classes, are adoptees forced migrants? That seems like a little bit of a nuanced term because when we typically think about this, usually it has to do with refugees or um, migrants who are fleeing their country for more extreme purposes. But by definition, is that what an adoptee is? Don't have the answer, but that's one of the questions. Um, we can also look at adoption having a higher influx when different countries are having times of turmoil or strife. For example, there was a large surge of Chinese adoptions post one child policy. And this is very gendered as most of you probably know, um, Asian culture, specifically Chinese, do value the birth of a man or a boy <laughs> because men are the ones Men are the sole caretaker of the family for elderly when they get older. So some of those um, perceptions of what it means to be a family are a little bit different than what we may view here in the United States. So that's another way it kind of involves geography. Another one that I was kind of mentioning with Avery earlier was adoption, as great as it can be, it does stem from a place of violence and that can be violence of the actual separation itself, losing everything you know and physically, like as a child. But also this process kind of continues as one gets older, um, you know, and it might not exactly be seen as violence and what we may perceive as violence, but there is a lot of disparities with um, socialization processes and whatnot. So I think that's kind of how it relates to geography. I'm pretty sure I could probably BS my way into kind of making it fit that bold. Um, but yeah, placemaking, identity making, and then um, social landscape as well. So the closest, yeah, like Tori mentioned, kinship geography is something that may be used more often, specifically um, by Deanne Borchet-Liam in March 2019, um, had a very influential documentary film that kind of talked about the geographies of kinship, which I work a lot with from, with um, my literature, it's with my research itself, along with other literature that kind of more so focuses on the psychology of adoption and kind of what that looks like for adolescents. Um, one of my big struggles for this project was being able to find literature and data that went 
um, beyond childhood adoptions. There's a lot of information out there for children themselves as they go through the process of socialization and growing up. And then there's a lot of information for adoptee parents or adopted parents, uh, parents who adopt, thank you, uh, <laughs> themselves. Um, so my biggest question, you know, was can Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota, which is south of the cities in Nicollet County, adopt a comprehensive adopt adopt a comprehensive adoptee program in the near future. Some of the questions I asked was to what extent are administration extra thank you, sorry. Getting nervous now. Okay. <laughs> to what extent are administrators in the college aware of the need for such for such a program and its benefits? How could a comprehensive adoptee program advance the school's efforts of diversity and inclusion? And can this research provide the initial knowledge to begin a serious conversation about the need to adopt this program? I was able to do nine exploratory interviews with different members from the Gustavus community. This included admissions office, counseling center, health services, chaplain's office, multi-faith leadership board, um, academic support center, the library, um, residential life, and uh, Gusty Well, which deals with mental wellness um, for students. And I was able to kind of just create a better understanding um, of what kind of the population of Gustavus was thinking, which I might be kind of going a little bit ahead of myself in. Um, and I was able to create 10 questions. The first one being like, um, you know, Gustavus or college experiences can vary greatly, obviously, but it is a really monumental time to find your identity and find out what's important to you. And that is something that, you know, a lot of people were able to really connect with. And then I was able to kind of move into, do you have any personal connections to adoption in your own life, whether that is being an adoptee or having friends who are adoptees or have adopted before? Um, then we were kind of able to move into the what the person's perception of adoption was and how that has kind of impacted how they've like navigated life or how has it changed throughout life. Um, and then I was kind of able to get more of a glimpse of are these people aware of any past programming options or opportunities for to save the students and then um, more so into questions about the schools commitment to DEI work and just kind of getting an overall general census of what um, people are thinking. And I think, you know, that was a good way for me to kind of piece together this lack of data formation that I was unable to find when I was doing my research. And, you know, beyond this, I also did textual analysis a little bit, trying to find forms online that would have collected any sort of information for adoptees, whether this be on the admissions form, um, FAFSA or other financial forms, along with health service forms and counseling center forms. Um, and then lastly, I was able to do some archival research on our school's archive website, Gribbly, 
which, which kind of showcases past events and that kind of stuff along with um, past blog posts and all of that kind of work as well. And I think this is pretty successful for the kind of research I did. You know, I obviously ran into um, some struggles with timing and, um, you know, trying to get as much as I could. Um, but, yeah, Tori, I was kind of wondering, you know, for this, because our research in some ways is sort of similar with working with maybe more underrepresented um, communities. So I was wondering, do you think that the way that we kind of went about our research was a successful way um, to kind of look at it? And I know that um, for those listening out there, you might need to go and take a look at Tori's podcast as well. Um, but just in the world of research, you know, how can we do this work without um, producing more trauma for these communities? And, you know, did you find your work successful in this way um, as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think like you said, um, our research is similar in that capacity and also in this language of um, violence, which is more than just, you know, like physically being hit or things like that. Um, and I think, I think ways that we really, um, I, I would say also, I think, in my opinion, my research was successful in highlighting narratives of individuals who have been left out of some of these movements or some of this mainstream dialogue that happens um, on platforms like social media or even in academia. Um, and I think part of that was because um, it was so clear in your methodology. Like You and I took the time to look at the way that intent, even when positive, can enact unintentional violence. And that intent at the end of the day doesn't always matter. It's, it's what, what ended up happening and what can we do about that. Um, and so I think, I think that approach really was successful, um, clearly in your research. And I think I feel similarly about mine, like the way that, um, you know, there is joy in there, these situations are all so complex, like adoption and also, um, you know, restitution for, um, individuals who experience gender violence, which is what my research is about. Um, you know, it's complex. There are joy in these places where these things occur or in the process itself, but there's also trauma and you have to acknowledge both of those at the same time to tell the full story. And I think individuals with marginalized identities have the best ability to tell those stories. And that's why those need to be highlighted. And that's why I think this sort of methodology and research is important. So absolutely. Amazing. Yes. One, I guess, final question wrap up for this section would be, or I don't know if it's a question, maybe it's more of an observation, but I know, you know, in our class, we were kind of able to look at some methodologies that were able to incorporate a patchwork um, method of finding text and pictures and interviews and kind of mashing this all together. Um, because, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily think the research that we are interested in doing is always worthwhile because of, you know, the capitalism stuff, because of the data and quantifying numbers and quantitative data stuff. But I think, you know, you said it perfectly, you know, just by allowing space and allowing discussion to happen and being the true um, creators of our, own, of our own stories and allowing 
those stories to tell themselves, I think is just really important. And I guess that was not actually a question, but if you have any last things to say before we wrap up this segment, I'd love to hear anything. Yeah, I I think that patchwork methodology really, that term that we coined this semester, well, that was coined by an individual of a book that we read, um, I think really gets at how you and I had to approach what we were doing. You know, when you're looking at questions that are opposing stories that people see as as positive, you know, things like adoption or police intervention, like you have to kind of be creative in your methodology because the information that counters those narratives isn't readily available because that's what the state wants. Um, And so I think that that clearly sums it up. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tori. I had a blast talking to you, and I'm excited um, for your podcast episode as well. Um, And yeah, thank you for tuning in, everyone. This was the second section to my three-part segment section for More Than Maps, Finding the Why of Where. Thank you.